Welcome, travelers, to this episode of Soundwave, the Shoreline of Infinity sci-fi podcast. I did see you there, using my telepathic abilities. In Soundwave, we at Stellar and Later Guild endeavor to bring you some of the finest sci-fi storytelling, poetry, discussion, and music available this side of Terok-Nor, not only because of its value as premier entertainment, but also because when people talk about space travel, it's the only time we use the word we to refer to the entire human race. I'm your host, RJ Bailey. How are you doing? Seriously, tweet me, at RJ Bailey. Don't provide context and wait three weeks later just to really confuse me. Now, we here at Soundwave and the SCG believe that speculative fiction has a unifying and thought-provoking power unrivaled by other, lesser genres, and it's for this reason I've picked out Jane Yolen's poem, Can Sci-Fi Save Us, to start the show. I see it as emblematic of the Guild mission statement. Just the one story this week as well, but settle in or go for a nice walk, that being the benefit of audio stories over written ones, not that my day job as an audiobook narrator makes me biased or anything, as we take a deep dive into a story about the price of teaching an unpalatable truth in a willfully ignorant world. Sonic Space this week is a conversation between myself and David L. Clements. Not only is David an excellent conversationalist, but he's also an astrophysicist by profession, working in extragalactic astronomy and observational cosmology, and he's a science fiction author. I know. Makes you sick. You might remember that we featured one of his stories last episode, Something Fishy, narrated by Debbie Cannon. I take full advantage of David's broad range of science fiction expertise by leading us on a conversation through his work on space missions and his influences as an author. If you'd like to hear a longer, unabridged version of that interview, you can do right now. Head over to patreon.com forward slash shoreline of infinity. Look for the levels labelled Soundwave. We'd also really appreciate a kind review on iTunes if you've got the time, or indeed whatever podcast platform you're listening via. But iTunes is the big one, you know, so we would be extra grateful for pleasing the Apple gods. I'm going to keep it bright and breezy this episode and just let us slink from one wordy segment to another since there's just three of those, but I will be back to introduce our non-wordy segment, our usual instalment of quality music. See you on the other side. Can Sci-Fi Save Us? by Jane Yolen Read by R.J. Bailey No more than a single politician, or the signing of a solitary bill. No more than a march of a thousand, a million, or the rise of a green sunburst. No more than a man in a grey suit, holding a placard outside Parliament or a dozen protesters inside. 
no more than a woman mowed down by a Nazi on a soft morning, nor a dozen dozen schoolchildren slaughtered at their desks. But a single story told enough times, warmed in the mouths of a thousand tellers, resurrected from a cross of Martian timber, ploughed into the dirt of a million stars, might make a difference. Perhaps long after we are gone, and our paper with us, there will be alien visitors, who, in a language different from ours, will coin a new word for sci-fi, and create tales that will erase all our planetary scars, setting the heavens alight again. The Last Days of the Lotus Eaters by Lee Harlan The earth and the creatures in it ate her flesh, but the tree kept her bones. Its roots wrapped around and entwined every remaining bit of her. Wind stirred the branches of the tree and it tickled as if it were her own leaves being caressed and tossed about. Birds perched on the branches and she felt their hopping feet and heard the chirps of their offspring. She remembered what it was like to have a beating heart, breath in her lungs, and feel the wind toss her hair about so that it tickled her face. She was awake, but not alive. Lita wasn't forgotten immediately. After she was buried, when she was only half awake, the roots not yet able to reach her bones, she had heard her parents weep above her. Every day they came to wail and lament, and she hated them hated them for not believing her. When her flesh was consumed and the roots fused to her bones, huge blossoms appeared on the tree that for years had produced fewer and more pitiful flowers as it died little by little. Now they were rich and fragrant, dense and beautiful in a way that she had heard the old folks talk about when they were melancholy and nostalgic and flushed with too much wine. Her parents gasped, taking the blossoming to be a sign, a comfort. She felt the tug as they each plucked one, the grinding of their teeth as they chewed, reveling in its sweetness. The flowers slid down their throats into their acid-filled bellies and then plucked out their memories, their fear, and their grief. It all passed into her, tasting like bitter dust. Her mother's agony as she was birthed, 
and her father's joy mixed with terror as he held her tiny body in his arms for the first time, thinking of how fragile she was and how much his life was about to change. She saw herself running through the woods and understood the fear that they had shoved down, brought on by her careless certainty that no matter where she ran or how high she jumped, she would never be hurt. And she felt the doubt that had crept in when she told them over and over that the sky shouldn't be so black, so empty, and there should be life beyond the walls of their little village. Their minds were emptied of all that made them doubtful and unhappy, while she felt swollen and sick. At night, the wind stirred the blossoms and carried pollen through the air and into the lungs of the sleeping villagers, dulling the fears that had been growing as the tree died. When people heard that it was producing flowers again, they came to eat them, and one by one, their fears and doubts were erased completely and buried in her. Only the priests took the vows not to eat the flowers. Though they were soothed by its pollen, their faith fortified and the guilt dulled, if not erased. They read secret texts that had told them what to do to keep the tree from dying and they needed to remember. All except one. One priest was given leave to break his vows and eat the blossoms. The one who had killed her. He walked up to the tree and picked a flower. With his other hand, he took out a flask and raised it to the tree. I truly am sorry, Lita. You were a remarkable young woman, but you were wrong. He took a sip of wine and ate the flower and gave her his memories. The night he heard that there was a little girl who talked about stars and the end of the universe, he was relieved and terrified. The tree was dying and they needed to revive it, but he had hoped that necessity would come when he had passed his position to a younger priest. He stayed awake all night, reading the holy book to fortify his nerves and staring into the flickering light of a candle, knowing it would still be years before the ritual could be performed. The text and his conscience demanded certainty. In the bright morning, she was running through the grass, running so fast she felt like maybe she could outrun the end of the world. She stopped when he stood in front of her. Lisa, could I walk with you for a little while? He said. She had been taught to trust and respect the priests, and though she wanted to keep running, she nodded. I heard you telling stories in the market yesterday, he said. They aren't stories. The night 
sky is empty and it didn't used to be. I read about stars in the library. There were so many of them and they were so beautiful that, that people wrote poetry about them and, and used them to navigate. There was a moon and there were huge oceans, entire planets where people lived and, and travelled. Not just one little village with an empty sky, she said. He smiled. Most people would say that those are just stories, fairy tales. It's unusual for a girl your age to believe such things. She glared at him. They aren't made up. Why would so many of the ancient writers all make up something like that? She wouldn't be reasoned with, not about this. She had told her parents, her grandparents, her friends and their parents since she was old enough to look at the sky and wonder why there was nothing but the sun in all that big black emptiness. No one believed her. She had hoped the priest would be different, that he would know some arcane secrets and share them with her. Having consumed those secrets... She understood he was different. He, he did know. He had wanted her to say, Yes, you're right, they're just stories. He wanted her to take it all back because he liked her. He liked that she was smart and not afraid to argue with him. He didn't want to have to kill her. But there was also a coldness in him. A small shard at the centre that made him certain that he could. That gave him a feeling of righteousness. He was doing what was best for everyone. What was one little girl's life in the face of chaos and despair for an entire people? He left her alone with her confusion. But he didn't leave her completely. She often saw him out the corner of her eye, listening to her conversations just a little too intently, watching her when the villagers gathered to dine together with a dark and contemplative expression. A couple of years after that first strange conversation, he stopped her while she was walking home from school. Would it be all right if I walked with you? He said. Of course. Even if he was a bit strange, her parents would send her to bed without dinner if she was rude to a priest. Tell me, do you still think the sky is too empty? He said. I know it is. What if you're right? What would be the purpose of knowing? Lita hadn't thought about that. She'd spent her life so angry and frustrated that no one believed her, that she hadn't thought much about why she wanted so badly for them to know, beyond simple vindication. The sun is a star. Whatever happened to the stars could happen to our sun, and we'd all die. And what? Would you do about it? I, I don't know. I, I just think people should know. Would it make them happier to know if there's nothing to be done about it? 
what would be the point of being good, of, of having children, working for a future that might be snuffed out with the sun at any moment, he said. She frowned. Why would knowing the truth mean people didn't do those things? Does the belief make you happier? Because it seems to me you don't have any interest in those things. You don't have many friends. And you've never expressed interest in having a boyfriend or girlfriend like other girls your age. Your teachers say that you've never talked about wanting to be a farmer, a builder, a healer, a baker. Or any of the other roles in the village when you finish your studies. Do you see yourself having a future? She wasn't unhappy, but it was true that she took little interest in planning for the future, and her insistence that the world had ended, and they were the last to know, drove people away and gave her a reputation for being strange. I don't object to those things, they just don't seem very important, she said. I think you're quite remarkable in that. Most people who believed that would lose all hope. They would do nothing but wallow in their despair and possibly act out in rage and be violent to others or themselves. But even if everyone took the knowledge as well as you, but the sun would still be there and shining bright for 50 years, a 100 years. We would still need to plan for a future. We would still need food and people to heal us when we're sick or hurt. We would still be better for having lived full lives. Are you trying to tell me that I should stop telling the truth? I'm asking you to consider that maybe other people should not know it. But they're believing a lie. It's not right. I don't know how to explain why it's not right, but it's not. The priest sighed. She understood now that he was seeking some kind of acceptance or consent from her to do what he knew must be done to soothe his own conscience. But at the time she had been confused. He was talking to her as if he might believe her, but it gave her no peace because he was raising questions she didn't have answers to and making her feel foolish. It was evident to her that it was true and people should know it for the very simple reason that it was wrong not to know the truth. The priest came to her one more time, shortly before she was to finish her schooling. She was sitting in the grass, reading from a dusty book she had found in the library, a book about cosmology and theories about the creation of the universe. It had been filed as science fiction and forgotten by everyone but her. I hear you've decided to become a teacher, Lita, he said. She nodded. Although the priest made her uncomfortable, she was also happy to see him. In her 16 years, he was the only person who had ever engaged with her about her beliefs that the universe was ending. Even though she left each conversation feeling confused and chastised, it was a relief to be taken seriously. 
and she felt more prepared to argue with him each time. Would you care to walk with me a bit? he said. She closed her book and slipped it into her bag. Okay. What led you to want to teach? There are so many things we've forgotten. Technology that could make our lives easier and maybe even save us if someone with a brain that works in just the right way learns about it. You still think the world is ending? I know the universe is ending. Everything is being pulled further and further apart and soon it's going to start getting too cold to grow things. Then it will get too cold to live on the surface and we'll need to go underground and eventually it will get too cold to live anywhere. We need to prepare. That doesn't sound like something anyone could prepare for. If annihilation is inevitable, why not let people live happily until the end? Maybe it is inevitable, but we would last longer and we might have a chance to avoid it for a long time if people knew. And I think that's worth the fear and even the despair. They came to the dying tree and he stopped and looked at her. You're very certain of yourself. She was proud. For the first time she felt she came out of the conversation with the priest as the victor. I am. He pulled a small flask from his jacket. I still disagree. I think you are young and idealistic and want to believe that people think and act like you. And that they would accept inevitable doom with grace and resilience, but I do admire you. Thank you, she said. He raised the flask. To the moral certainty of youth and the intellect and tenacity you have grown into so well. He took a drink. Although she now knew that he let it graze his lips and slosh back inside. He passed the flask to her. Just a sip. I can't have it said a holy man is getting young women drunk. She hesitated. But she was flattered. And her parents only let her have wine on holy days. She took a sip. It tasted like vinegar and ash and in just seconds she was unconscious. The priest believed that the drug would prevent her from waking up and feeling any part of the ritual. But he was wrong. The tree did not share the priest's minimal compassion, and the ritual was not one that it allowed its sacrifice to sleep through. She also knew from being forced to carry his memories that even if he had known, he would have buried her still alive at the base of the tree anyway. Such was his faith and conviction. When she woke, she choked on the dirt and screamed as the roots bore into her like hungry fingers ripped 
dipping into her soft skin, ravenous for the life bleeding out of her body and the taste of the knowledge that had marked her for death. It had been a long time since it had been given a new life to nourish it. As the blossoms pulled out and transferred the priest's memories of her and how he had liked her and how he had vomited when he heard the muffled screams coming up through the ground, she wanted to tell him that Chili still knew that he was wrong and she still intended to be a teacher in her own way. He walked away, his mouth still sweet from the blossom he had consumed and his mind emptied of terrible memories and doubts about the righteousness of his actions. He returned to the priesthood a blank slate, prepared to watch for the next girl who wanted to know why the sky was so dark. Years passed, and her parents and all the people she had known when she was alive died, their names soon as forgotten as her own to the handful who struggled to survive on the increasingly hostile surface. The sun still shone in the sky, but it looked smaller. The plants began dying and the people above whispered through frost-bitten fingers. Winter is almost over. Summer is on its way. But she knew winter would never end, and soon the people above forgot that there had ever been such a thing as summer. The tree alone stayed green. And every night it spread pollen on the wind so that they could believe winter was all there was. And they shouldn't look too hard at the sky. As her bones crumbled, the blossoms began to shrink. And there was less and less of them each year. So the people saved eating them only for holy days. And slowly, their doubts began to grow. A young girl came and sat at the base of the tree. I don't have any friends. They all think I'm strange. Yesterday a group of big kids tried to throw me in the river because I told them winter didn't used to last forever. It used to get warm and green. I read it in a book. A little kid was swinging on a rope and they jumped into a lake and they didn't get sick and have to get warmed up afterwards. They picked flowers. Not like from you, where they eat them, but just because there were so many and they were pretty. I wish you weren't just a tree so you could talk to me. The girl stood and ran away. Soon after, the girl's teacher came to eat the blossoms and she swallowed his doubts and the fear he felt when a priest came and asked about her, wanting to know what she wrote about in her school essays and if she had any plans for the future. 
the possibility of a future was almost gone. Soon it would be too cold for anyone to survive on the surface and they would need to go underground and start learning the tools to extend their survival as long as possible. And just like she had known, that little girl would be certain that people deserved to know and that immunity to the lie marked her for death because there were no words to convince a zealous and righteous priest that she was right. She couldn't save her own life. And she couldn't return the possibility that knowledge gave the rest of the village. Only the tree could do that. She didn't have much time if any knowledge returned to the village was to be of any help. But she would have to wait until the girl was a little older, old enough to read and understand more than just children's stories. The new priest came to the girl again. The tree was dying fast and he didn't wait as long between conversations as the old priest had for Lita. The girl came to sit at the base of the tree as had become her custom. I wish I knew how to explain to the priest that it's important for people to know the truth. I feel stupid. It's just so obvious. It doesn't make sense why I'm the only one who sees it. You're starting to die, but you're still green and nothing else is. It's not normal. I don't care how spiritually important a tree is. It can't survive the cold so well, the girl said. Lita felt hope for the first time since she died. She reached out. One of the branches flicked and the backpack she had been carrying the day the priest had buried her slipped from the hole where it had fallen unnoticed. The girl picked it up and opened it. One by one, took the books out and flipped through the pages. Did you do that? She looked amazed and suspicious, but she sat at the base of the tree and read for hours. When night descended, she put the books back in the bag and ran home. Even though they did not affect her, the girls stopped eating the blossoms on holy days. So Lisa had no idea what the girl might have figured out from the books or about who they had belonged to. One night, under the cover of darkness, the girl came out to the tree with a ladder and one by one plucked off each blossom and burned them in a pile. There was terror and outrage in the village the next day when they discovered that all of the flowers were gone, although no one knew who had done it was an ingenious idea and Lita was delighted by the girl's cleverness. But the blossoms grew back. During the weeks it took, however, the questions and doubts flourished in the little village. The girl's parents came to the tree and prayed. They ate two of the small blossoms, even though they knew it was forbidden outside of holy days to preserve the few remaining. They were deeply troubled by their daughter's insistence that the tree 
was somehow blinding everyone to the fact that the world was dying, that the sky shouldn't be empty, that the sun used to be nearer. And they were growing distrustful of the priest, who came and asked them about her, if she told them of her theories, and if they thought she believed what she said, or if she was just a little girl telling stories. That night, the girl came one more time. She opened a bottle of alcohol and poured it on the tree and set it ablaze. In the ground, Lita screamed silently. Not since the tree had ripped her apart had she felt pain like that. She thrashed and the tree above her shook and groaned. People ran from the village and threw buckets of water on it. It smouldered for days. But the fire did not kill the tree, not completely. She wasn't sure if the tree could be killed. But it was badly hurt and would not be able to grow blossoms for a long time. Desperate for nourishment to heal itself, it gripped her fragile bones in its roots as if it were wringing the last drops of water out of a sponge. It squeezed until her bones turned to dust and the memories and knowledge she had swallowed for so many years soaked the earth. With no other soul to carry that burden, the hungry roots drank in all of the secrets she had kept for so long. After several months, the tree began to regrow, and a few pitiful tiny flowers bloomed, still fueled by the last bits of Leisha's life it had stored in its roots. That night, when the wind blew, it carried the pollen laced with generations of knowledge and memories, dusting the sleeping survivors with doubt and questions. The next morning, the girl awoke to a village gripped with chaos and panic. She looked at the tree, blackened and skeletal looming on the hill over the village and whispered a thank you. Hello, you're listening to RJ Bailey's Sonic Space here on Shoreline of Infinity's Soundwave podcast. I'm talking to David L. Clements. He's an astrophysicist working in extragalactic astronomy and observational cosmology, and he's also a science fiction writer. How are you doing, David? I'm melting gently in the heat in London. <laughs> I, uh, it's funny, actually. I've been uh, recording for an audiobook, War of the Worlds. So when you hear, when you say you're melting in London, it brings to mind uh, Martian heat rays incinerating people on Horsell Common. Well, I think we've got solar heat rays at the moment. 
not not helped, of course, by by global warming, but uh, that's a, that's a different matter. No, you're, you're quite right, though. Um, so you you have got an amazing job title. Can you tell me what an astrophysicist working in extragalactic astronomy and observational cosmology does, please? Well, it I'm, I'm surrounded by similar people, and mm -hmm. um, we all do various different things. This is the astrophysics group at Imperial. Um, what I'm specifically interested in in this area of, of, of astronomy, there's, there's other things I do as well, which we can get onto later, um, is to try and understand how galaxies form, how galaxies evolve, and especially the role of dusty galaxies in that process. So um, these are sort of objects that you can't easily detect with large ground-based or space-based optical telescopes. So um, the European Southern Observatory VLT, very large telescope, isn't very good at seeing these. The Keck telescopes aren't because there's lots of dust in them and that dust absorbs the optical and ultraviolet light mm. that, you would, that these telescopes are sensitive to. So you have to work at other longer wavelengths. And that uh, has, has taken me to use telescopes like the James Clark Maxwell Telescope, uh, which used to be run by the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, um, now no longer, unfortunately. Um, that's in, in Hawaii, and that uh, works at uh, much, much longer wavelengths than uh, our eyes are sensitive to. But it can pick up these galaxies, the dust in these galaxies, which um, is at a temperature of about 50, 30, 40, 50 degrees above absolute zero compared to the kind of stuff that our eyes are sensitive to, which is you know, sunlight, plenty of that streaming through my window at the moment, uh -huh. uh, which is material at about five and a half thousand, six thousand degrees above absolute zero. So very, very different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, but ground-based isn't ideal for this kind of thing, and that's what's led me to involvement in space missions like the Herschel Space Observatory, the, the speaker, um, proposed next generation space far infrared telescope um, and other similar missions like Planck, uh, IRAS, uh, ISO, Spitzer uh, and Akari. So that, that, that's a few of the satellite missions I've been I've used data from or, or been involved with over the years. And these satellites, do they have like, I'm treat me like an idiot because, hey, I am an idiot. What do these satellites have telescopes on them? Yes, yes, they are space observatories. What, so, with with uh, lenses or? Uh, mirrors. Pretty much everything that we do for, as professional astronomers uses reflecting telescopes rather than refracting telescopes that use lenses. So, for example, the Herschel Space Observatory, which I've been involved with since 2001, um, that launched in 2009 and was and still is the largest astronomical mirror put into space with a diameter of three and a half meters. Uh, wow. We have to be very careful about what we say. That's why I say it's the largest astronomical mirror put into space, because there are rumours there are bigger mirrors up there that they don't point upwards, they point down. Oh, tell me about this. I, I, I can't. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> and even if I did, if, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. And <laughs> that is, are you being serious or is this a conspiracy theory? No, I'm, I'm being serious about that. The the one of the um, so the James Webb Space Telescope, which uh, when it's launched, whenever that might be, because it's been suffering some quite serious delays, that has a six and a half meter or will have a six and a half meter primary mirror, 
um, the company that built that, Northrop Grumman, were uh, very confident that they could build a mirror like that, which has to essentially unfold itself once the spacecraft gets into into orbit. Um, and there are reasons why they're very confident they can do that. Probably because they've done it before, but they're not allowed to tell us that. Hypothetically, if one of these these uh, these telescopes was in space looking down, why would they look down? And not up. I mean, what 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 what's the purpose of that? Would you? These think? are telescopes that are run by organisations uh, which have three-letter acronyms and are largely based in Virginia, like the National Reconnaissance Office. Oh, security agency. So uh, those are the sort of things that they would be used for. Wow. Okay. Well, that's just terrified me, and probably a lot of the listeners. <laughs> I actually had no idea, and I enjoy a good conspiracy theory myself. Um, so, but I usually like the more out there weird ones, like Hollow Earth and things like that, and and lizard people and the monarchy and so forth. Uh, but um, you, you don't wear, or was it turquoise that David Icke uh, uh, favours? I hope. No, I don't actually. <laughs> um, but I I probably should. I mean, I always keep a ready supply of tin foil in the house as well, just in case I need to fashion some headgear. And it sounds like I need to if there's some satellites pointing down at me. Oh, well, they're, they're just what, looking over your shoulder. That, by and large, they're actually looking over um, at wherever uh, Russia, China, maybe North Korea have got their you know, nuclear missiles. So um, unless there's some, some secret installations in Edinburgh that I'm not aware of, uh, you're probably fairly safe. Good. Well, I don't know. I still don't know whether or not them looking at Russia and so forth makes me feel better. Or worse about the state of the world, but there we are. Um, so you work at um, Imperial College London, right? Yep, that's correct. Um, so how, how do you interact with these? I mean, you're not on space missions, I presume. So so how do you interface with these satellites and the data? I'm involved, I'm involved in space missions. Um, I was. That's amazing. Um, so many of the people I work with, so it doesn't feel amazing, but thank you for for, for, for um, bringing me, demonstrating how non-mundane my life actually is. It is um, you go, you do space, you're involved with space missions. That's as yep. close to sci-fi as it gets right now. That's uh, one step away from flying into space yourself. That's true. Um, we will perhaps get on a little bit something something that's even closer to science fiction mm. uh, what I do, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so all of these space telescopes, they're robotic. Um, one of the reasons for that is that um, having you know, 70 or 80 kilograms of, of canned primate attached to your um, exquisitely sensitive and um, very accurately pointed astronomical instrument doesn't actually help very much. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 this is one of the things that uh, you realize when you start looking at uh, the pointing requirements. So we, we need the fields of view on these telescopes are usually fairly small and you want to keep your telescope pointed at the objects that you're interested in. Um, and on Earth, that's easily done because you bolt your telescope to the Earth. That's a fairly stable platform, <laughs> uh, though I have been at observatories where there have been earthquakes, uh, which is an interesting experience in itself. Um, but by and large, the Earth doesn't wobble very much. Mm -hmm. 
However, if you go and attach, even if it's on the International Space Station, which is a fairly large mass object, if you're trying to point a telescope from there and you've got what's the crew of the space station, about three or four people, um, if they're all moving around and they've got equipment moving around, et cetera, et cetera, then your pointing stability is much, much reduced. So you don't actually want people nearby. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, the, the current generation of, well, not just infrared space missions, but pretty much all space missions that are concerned with astronomy, uh, we send them to what's called the L2 point, the second Lagrange point, which is uh, beyond the moon. It's about one and a half million kilometers away. Um, it's more of a region than a point, but we still call it a point. Um, and that's relatively stable gravitationally. So if you put something there, it's it, it's not too difficult to keep it there. Uh, but the the great thing about the L2 point is that the the Earth and the Sun are always in the same direction. So obviously, if you've got a sensitive sensitive instrument, whether it's optical or far infrared, you don't want to point anywhere near the sun and the earth. Mm -hmm. But if they're both in the same direction, that makes the problem much, much easier. Uh, So the somewhat unfortunate corollary to that is if all your instruments are one and a half million kilometers away, you can't go out there and fix them when they break, Mm. Uh, which is one of the nice things about the Hubble Space Telescope. It's in low earth orbit. So when the shuttle was flying, you could go up there, replace instruments, repair things. And that's one of the great things that's kept the the Hubble Space Telescope going for for so long at the forefront of of science. Um, James Webb, Herschel, which which is no longer operating, Planck, also no longer operating. Um, All of these other these current generation telescopes out at L2, you have to get them there and make sure that they work, because if it breaks, you can't fix it. Mm -hmm. And, Uh, And what should something go wrong? Is is that it? It's just that's a write off. It depends what goes wrong. Um, all of these all space missions are designed with a lot of redundancy in them. So if if one thing breaks, you switch over to the backup for it. That's not true of everything on these missions. So, for example, the instrument I was concerned with on Herschel called Spire, uh, which was a UK led instrument, which Imperial was strongly involved with, as well as places like Cardiff, the Rutherford Appleton Lab. Uh, the Royal Observatory Edinburgh was somewhat involved as well. Um, so there was only the one set of astronomical instrumentation. It had several different channels. So if one of the channels blew, we still had a couple of others that we could work with. Um, there were two halves to the instrument, a spectrometer half and a photometer half. If we lost, for example, the spectrometer, we could still do photometry. Um, and on the electronics side, there were there was a redundant set. In fact, for for one of the other instruments on Herschel called HiFi, um, early on in the mission, there was a problem which meant that uh, half the, the primary electronics that drove it broke, um, mm-hmm. and they spent about six months analysing what the problem was, working out whether it would happen again, what they could do to stop it happening again. And once they were sure that the problem would not reoccur, they turned the redundant side electronics on and were able to do their observations. So it slowed them down a bit, mm-hmm. but um, something broke, but it was there was there was something redundant there. So the, the thing, the two key lessons I've learned about 
building space hardware um, through my involvement with Herschel and Planck and, and to somewhat to some extent with earlier missions like ISO. Um, you need to avoid two things in a space mission. One is moving parts because anything that moves, it's going to be up there in a, in a hard vacuum, usually at pretty cold temperatures. Uh, moving parts in those in those circumstances are finicky, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And since it's going to be up in space, you could, if it gets stuck, you can't fix it. So you keep the number of moving parts down to a minimum, an absolute minimum, eliminate them completely if you can, um, and then also avoid what's known as single point failure mode. So if one thing goes wrong, you lose the entire mission. This leads me to a lot of the worries I have about the James Webb Space Telescope because because it's got such a large mirror and because it's going to be working in, in, in the medium infrared wavelengths, it needs a very large sh sun shield to keep scattered light away from the primary mirror and, and the instruments so they can be at the right temperature. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope is, is launched in a, in a folded configuration where so it, once it gets to where it's going to, to L2, um, it will deploy itself. And this involves unfolding the primary mirror, folding down the secondary mirror for the telescope, which is not in the right place to start off with. Uh, and the largest and, and most complicated part of this is the sun shield. It's about the size of a tennis court. And that has to unfurl itself. It's got about four different layers. They have to separate themselves. And all of this is driven by moving parts. There's about a hundred separate actuators, all of which have to do their moving, function perfectly. If one of those parts doesn't work, at best the 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 mission is compromised, so it won't be as sensitive, for example, as as it's designed to be. And in the worst case, if for example, the primary mirror doesn't unfold properly or the secondary mirror doesn't unfold properly. You lose the mission. So that's why um, I'm quite glad not to be directly involved with James Webb. Um, <laughs> when we launched Herschel and Planck, so these are two missions launched on the same launch vehicle in 2009. I was involved in both. Um, the. The process of a launch, at least from the point of view, he's got something strapped to the top of it on which their career depends. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the situation I was in. Um, a launch vehicle is about 2000 tons of high explosive. And for a successful launch, that high explosive has to go off in exactly the right order. Um, anything, any deviation from exactly the right order and you go from being in the wrong orbit to being at the bottom of the Atlantic uh, in, in a thousand pieces, which has happened. That happened to the cluster mission with the first launch of the Ariane 5 vehicle. Um, and I, I, I watched that live and there's a friend of mine who literally, I, his career exploded with the rocket. Uh, so like that's like is that held against them then like when you say their career explodes like is is that it they're not working his, anymore his career in science ended at that point that is that sounds very harsh to me <laughs> yeah this is at least partly because of the funding environment we work in right 
but that is what happened. Mm-hmm. And whenever you know, I'm now in a secure academic position, there's I can be involved in launches in the future and they can go horribly wrong and I'll still have a job. So that, so I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But, and at some level I was at that point when Herschel and Planck launched though was very early to my academic position. So things could still go horribly wrong. Um, so, uh, yes, that's, that's the risks that really you you face. Yeah. That, uh, and so watching the launch of Herschel and Planck, knowing not only did they have to get off the pad, but the second stage had to work, that they had to get into the right low Earth orbit, that they then had to separate, that the fairing had to come off. The two space vehicles then had to separate from the launch bus. And then... And- this is a series series of actions. That was about half an hour uh-huh. uh, between when the blue touch paper was was lit and, and the Ariane five went off, to the point at which we thought we were as safe as we could be, uh, and it probably is the longest half hour of my life. Now the guys on the James Webb Space Telescope, that point uh, when you get to separation and and your 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 satellite, your, 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 your vehicle is running its own show and, uh, you're no longer reliant upon the excellent engineers at Ariane Space, but you know, still that shit happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it took us half an hour until we were on our own. And at that point, at least for Herschel, if I remember correctly, there was one remaining critical thing that had to happen that we would have no control over as an instrument team, which is essentially opening the lens cap. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that was a moving part, which was mis- mission critical and, and a single point failure mode. So if the, um, the lens cap at the top of the cryostat, where the instruments were, if, if that didn't open, then that's it. But it worked successfully, so we were fine. Um, but for James Webb, they've got about six months during which time these various different unfurling maneuvers will take place. Uh, I, I think by the end of that six months, they're all going to be on uh, anti-high blood pressure meds. <laughs> it's going to be so stressful. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, uh, there sounds like there is a, despite not actually being strapped to the high explosives, it sounds like there is a huge amount of, personal risk then because it's not it's not to be taken lightly and, and people will like some people might listen or cynical people will go well it's not like they're strapped to the thing they're not going to die if it explodes but it's a career like it's your entire life gets absolutely yeah. shattered completely shattered what you've trained for all your life you know educated yourself in and then worked in and your passion and your love can be destroyed at the same time as the rocket. That's something I've taken from this, which is really brought home how risky it is for absolutely everyone involved. You know, not yep. just people sat there doing equations and pushing buttons. There is a huge amount of risk involved in this thing. While that's very exciting as well, that's it's really like brought brought home to me how risky that is. So thank you very much for enlightening me on that. Okay, well, I'm glad to have, glad to have done that service because there's lots of my colleagues involved in these sorts of things uh and the more people who understand 
why when it gets around to launch time they get a bit cranky. <laughs> a bit cranky is probably an understatement. Yes. Also, once you've launched and once it's successful, it also explains why um, there's usually a large amount of alcohol involved. I bet. I yes. bet. And I wouldn't blame them whatsoever either. Yeah. Aliens, obviously, featuring in much science fiction. You yourself, not just a scientist, but a science fiction writer. Uh, does the science you do influence your writing? Oh, very much so. Um, I, uh, there, there's a lot of what I write is, is within what you would call a hard science fiction subgenre. So I try to get the science at least believable, if not exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, the story is still the important thing. Um, so sometimes you have to bend the science a little bit to make the story work. Um, but I always try to keep things at least plausible, if not exactly right, um, at least for most things. So yes, it definitely influences me on the details. It also influences my mindset, I guess, um, at least for some of the stuff I've written, I try to do what you might want to call cosmological science fiction, trying to put things in a, in, or at least demonstrate the the huge scales of distance, the huge scales of time in the universe. So one of one of the stories I published, one of the earlier ones I published, um, was in an anthology called Footprints, uh, which the, the concept or, or the conceit for this is that um, the the footprints that were left on the surface of the moon by the Apollo astronauts. Um, have the potential to outlive human civilization. They could, they could last for you know, a billion years. So the Earth might well be completely different by the time aliens of some kind turn up and find the footprints. Uh, and so I wrote a story that, that used this as the starting point because that was the definition, or that was the, the conceit for the anthology, uh, and set it at a point about four or five billion years in the future after the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy have collided and uh, interacted. One of the big things I'm, I, I work on is interacting galaxies. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was the backdrop to the story and, and long, very long periods of time, very, very long uh, distances, etc. And I, that, that, that's featured in a couple of other stories of mine as well. Uh, I don't always cleave tightly to um to the science i've done one or two uh lovecraftian stories so although one of one of the things that attracts me to the whole cthulhu mythos is that lovecraft came up with those concepts partly in a reaction to the results of astronomy that were coming out when he was writing them in in the um, 1920s and 1930s. That's when Hubble were, had, had worked out that the these things that had been classified as spiral nebulae mm -hmm. for many years were actually galaxies like our own, but a long, long way away. And it was as if the universe, as we understood it, suddenly expanded uh, and became a much bigger, much 
lonelier, colder and um, uncaring place. And at some level, Cthulhu and the whole Cthulhu mythos are Lovecraft's way of trying to personify that um, that inhumanity of the universe sure. into these vastly powerful but utterly uncaring godlike creatures. Yeah, that's they are truly. I mean, they defy. They are truly alien, aren't they? Like we we cannot comprehend them. To to look upon some of them literally sends. Uh, the beholder insane. Yes, if they? you try to if you try to comprehend them, you go mad because that they are, they, their comprehension is not compatible with with human intelligence. So, w w when you are talking about cosmological sci-fi, how do you maintain a consistency of characters if you are talking about enormous periods of time without them all becoming incredibly old? Or well, dying. You, you you have to wave um, wave your hands around and, and come up with things like uploading, um, whether that's to allow people people's consciousnesses to be broadcast from one place to another at the speed of light, which mm -hmm. is as fast as we can go, which you know, allows you to have things happen, um, or on on other planets without faster than light travel. Um, or you have your characters uploaded and running on computational hardware. So there's one story I wrote, uh, which was in the Conflicts Anthology, um, where our characters essentially wake up uh, about 100 million years in the future. They're on a what's effectively a lifeboat from the earth mm -hmm. sent, sent away um, with you know, lots of uploaded personalities, all of which are in storage with uh, nanotechnology, which can rebuild things, um, give people back bodies, etc. Once they arrive at a place they, they think they hope is um, a sanctuary from what has got rid of the earth, shall we say? I don't want to, Provide any spoilers, but that's the background. Um, and and you can play with things if if you've got uh, uploaded characters, you can play with things like changing the the pace of time so that they can run much much slower. So since they're on a on a journey that's going to take many millions of years, you can you can still have them functioning if they're if they're working at a a pace that's a million times slower than real time, then then things can happen. It's a fascinating concept. Um, would you, some, an idea that I really like was in uh, Joe Haldeman's um, Forever War, mm -hmm. uh, where spaceships go, you know, they, they do jumps to distances, um, many, you know, huge distances away uh, to different war zones. Yeah. But often they'll come out of their tra travel a uh, hundred years too late or a hundred years too early. Is that kind of cosmological sci-fi, would you say? Um, it's the, the origin for why Joe was doing that isn't quite the same origin for, for why I'm 
doing something which at the end might look a little bit similar. Sure. The Forever War is about Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and there will certainly be, be, be occasions when you go out there to uh, have a battle and either it's finished or hasn't started yet because the intelligence just is inadequate. And, and what Joe was doing with that was um, writing that on a, 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 a larger canvas, mm-hmm. and, um, science fictionalizing it. Uh, so it might end up with the same thing, but, I, but, but we're doing it for different reasons. As it so, yeah, so I, I was aware that it was, you know, it's a Vietnam story. So to you, the definition of, say, a subgenre of sci-fi, is that the point of origin, not the end result? Because for me, I see things, you know, uh, in, in horror, for example, you can have a slasher or, or a horrible, um, you know, slasher movie like Last House yeah. on the Left. And you can have um, another slasher movie like A Nightmare on Elm Street. And what the original one, they're both by Wes Craven, and, and the original yeah. one was b- about Vietnam. And um, Nightmare on Elm Street was about people suffering from night terrors um, mm. and how that affected young people. But for me, they're both slasher movies. They just have different points of origin. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on, on, on those both being slasher movies, because that is a, is a genre of its own. Mm-hmm. I guess um, when I talk about cosmological SF, that's where I'm seeking inspiration. The, the end result is is relatively standard hard SF, mm-hmm. which you could also classify the Forever War in. Uh, it's a while since I've read it, but yes, I, I think the Forever War would would it, it 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 seeks at least internal consistency and has a a knowledge of when it's bending or breaking the rules of physics mm-hmm. and and lampshades them with this i think it's the singularity drive i can't remember what what their faster than light drive is called um so yeah i i i think they're both routes to hard science fiction, mm-hmm. um, but it's how we get there is somewhat different. One of my big loves when I was young, uh, when it came out, was a movie called Men in Black. Oh yeah! Uh, I, oh god, when you were young, oh dear, I remember watching <laughs> that when I wasn't young. <laughs> <laughs> In 1997, that was yeah, a real yeah. formative thing for me, which had that blend of conspiracy theories and cool-looking aliens and um, incredibly large chrome guns and sharp mm. suits, which definitely oh, yeah. appealed yeah. to me. But also actually a really great, witty, funny, clever movie as well yeah, on top of absolutely. that. Um, and you've written for the anthology Conspiracy. Um, yeah. Does Do conspiracy theories play a, a role in your work? Um, not a particularly large one in my science fiction. There, there's stuff that I'm doing. Well, actually, backing off from from I'll back off from that statement a little bit. Um, there, whilst not an explicit conspiracy theory in the sense that you know people are conspiring to do things, um, there's a series. Of, I think it's it's five stories set in the same universe that I've published so far and there's 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 more coming. Um I like the idea of a secret history to the universe where um what we think you know 
once we go out there exploring, finding alien civilizations or whatever, what we think is going on isn't actually what's going on. And that the uncovering of that is part of the uh, part of the narrative thread of the story. And it's 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 a I find that whether I'm I'm reading some science fiction by L. Reynolds or some um, more contemporary fiction by by writers like James Elroy, uh, I find the idea of a, a, a sort of secret history and uncovering that mm-hmm. as as part of the narrative. Um, is it, 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 it appeals to me a lot. The danger we have with all of these conspiracy theories, and the conspiracy theory is is seductive. Uh, yeah. Because it makes sense of the world when the world doesn't seem to make sense. I, I have this... Uh, I've had this 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 thought for quite some time that we are a narrative species. We tell stories. We understand the world through stories. Um, the laws of physics are very compact stories for how things work, uh, and told in very precise language of mathematics. Uh, but uh, at some level, Newtonian mechanics is a simple story. And it's the one that we thought was true in you know, the 16, 1700s, but it's not the full story, as Einstein showed, mm-hmm. uh, and as Schrodinger showed with, with quantum mechanics, etc. So, more generally, conspiracy theory is seductive because it makes sense of stuff that is you know, bad shit, but there isn't anybody you can point a finger at. Or just uh, trouble, I, things that are tr- things that are just, even if it's not bad, um, it remind it kind of you've made me think of like, uh, not well, it could be a conspiracy theory many many uh, ages ago that the the large disc revolving round the sky was actually pushed around by an enormous dung beetle. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of like it, it kind of like it, in a way, like it seems to me like it's very similar to religion in a way or some religions in that it is explaining the, the unexplainable uh, yes. and, and that, solves that, your problem for you. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a if you look at some of the more serious conspiracy theory groups around the world, they do verge upon religion. And one of the reasons for that as well as it being a similar underlying impulse. One of the other reasons for that is that if, if you delve too deeply into a conspiracy theory, the, you, you have to start inventing um, essentially supernatural forces to make it work. Mm-hmm. And then you're definitely off in, 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 in a religious direction. So if you, if you look at the people who... Um, Yes, let's say that the people who think the 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 world is run by lizard aliens in human suits. Sure. So, how do they maintain their their human suits? Well, that's got to be a uh, that, that, that that they start getting off into some very strange things. Where do the lizards come from? Well, you've got flying saucers and stuff like that, which has to be folded in. Again, you're going into um, fairly extreme territory. And then you start also having to 
spread the conspiracy so that, for example, when a minor royal, well, like, like you know, maybe, maybe not even a minor royal, Diana Spencer dies in a car accident. Why isn't there green lizard blood everywhere? Yeah, etc. Uh, <laughs> you you begin to push things out into less and less believable places. Yeah, it's, uh, I can it, I can see why it's construct uh, seductive, but then destroys itself. And mm. like you say, it's got to um, create absurd fictions that border yep. on the um, supernatural. Or, I have to or say, straight up are paranormal. Yeah, exactly. I have to say, some of the sanest people I know uh, are people who've been involved in conspiracy-based role-playing games because they've had to, as it were, get part of their mind working inside the conspiracy to come up with the scenarios, etc. But also, they got their their mind working outside the conspiracy because they know that's not the real world. Yeah. Um, and, and at some level, it, it, it acts as a an inoculation against uh, your your conspiracy um, conspiracy theorists out out in the real world. The people who, for example, claim that global warming is a conspiracy by scientists to who all get together and decide, oh well, yes, we need to um, screw the oil companies or. or um, Get rid of the get rid of the wealth that the wealthy people in America have from oil. If you've ever met a bunch of scientists, we don't agree on anything. We couldn't cons <laughs> we couldn't conspire a trip to a restaurant. <laughs> um, again, it's it's one of those unstable conspiracies. If if there was a conspiracy of of climate scientists. Think how much money, power, prestige, influence would go to the one person who says, look, I've been inside the, the, the conspiracy for the last 10 years. I've collected all of these documents that, that explain how uh, all of this is, is, is nonsense. Um, and, and I've been inside the, the secret volcano base of the, of the climate scientists. <laughs> and, and that's where it is. Um, and it's full of fluffy white cats. Uh, that person would, he'd get the Nobel Peace Prize, he'd get uh, everything. Yeah. Would get be be given the the uh, permanent thanks of of every oil plutocrat on the planet. But it's not happened because it's not there. Well. I'm sure there's a reason someone will give about you cannot leave under pain of death or something like that. But no, you're, you are absolutely right. Then it's, you start having to, in, in, to, to invent the black helicopters yeah. and the mind implants and, and ways of stopping people doing what they otherwise would do. And funnily enough, the men in black. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, and it could be, you know, conspiracy theories, of course, it makes me think how dangerous they can be as well. Um, exactly. They're seductive, but they, if they fit in with your ideas, uh, Pizzagate was a very um, mm. prominent one recently uh, that would have done a lot of damage to Hillary Clinton, oh. utterly absurd as it was. Um, and I suppose while we can laugh at them and scorn at them, 
people like Mike Cernovich are capable of actually causing damage uh, oh, yeah. to society by spreading ridiculous conspiracy theories. But it goes all the way back to things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the burning of the Reichstag. Yeah. That's where it can go and you know, where Germany went after that. Uh, the the prom proliferation of, of conspiracy theories and con conspiracy theory thinking in in the Nazi party was extreme. And there was nobody there to error correct them, because if you tried to, you didn't last. Sure. Of course, they had their occult division, didn't they? Yes, the Fuller-Gesellschaft, which, which features majorly in, in uh, the, as it were, the backstory of Delta Green. Ah. I always think of Indiana Jones. I go for a more mainstream reference point when I think of the occult Nazis. Uh, I I have a very soft spot for the first Hellboy film. Oh yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, with the clockwork uh, Nazi yes. Gestapo officer. And, and um, when I went to the cinema to watch it, and and the first opening quote comes up as a sort of flavour quote, and it's attributed to Unas uh, Frischlichen Colton, which is one of the the Lovecraftian tomes. Uh, I thought. Yep, I'm going to enjoy this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a cracking movie. We've been talking about fiction and your influences. What about your own fiction? What What have you got and what can we read coming out from yourself? Well, the best place to start if you, if you want to read David L. Clements um, is my collection of short stories called Disturbed Universes. This came out in 2016 from Newcon Press. It's still available from them. Um, you can get it in a Kindle version or in a paperback version if you, if like me, you prefer dead tree media. Um, so that's collected most, well, pretty much everything I, I published and a couple of other things that were unpublished up until 2016. Um, and I've had a number of bits of short fiction published since then uh, in conspiracies or conspiracy with an exclamation mark as, mm -hmm. as you mentioned. You have to shout it. Um, yes, I, I, I'll save your microphone. And <laughs> um, then there's a uh, couple of pieces in Shoreline Infinity, of course. Um, got to mention them. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some as, as is inevitable for any writer you talk to, there are the things that are with uh, Publishers at the moment, which they have yet to accept. <laughs> sure, sure. So I've got a, num a number of stories that are, that are, as it were, out in the market at the moment. Um, and there's also a novel that I'm trying to find an agent for. Uh, the novel is called, or at least the working title for it is The Borbarki Conjecture. Say that um, again, sorry. The Borbarki Conjecture. Uh, people who know a little bit about... Uh, maths might recognize the name mm -hmm. um and that's set in uh the outer solar system uh several hundred years or 150 or so years after a, a disaster has befallen most of humanity uh and uh we're looking at how things are recovering and the secret history of the collapse which is what destroyed uh most of civilization so back to conspiracy theories again. I was going to say, it, it sounds very appropriate. History. 
so so I'm sending that to agents at the moment, but haven't had a positive response yet, but fingers crossed. Um, and the next thing I'm planning to work on oh, is, is a couple, couple of projects, um, one of which is a bit of a departure. Uh, some years ago, I, I wrote what could be best described as um, urban fantasy. So rather more realistic, like the werewolves in this really are out to get you. They just they, they, they're not they're not there to be uh, cute and cuddly and, and uh, <laughs> romantic interest. Sure. Um, so I have a there's one story in, in, in that setting, which is is written uh, needs a little bit of updating. And then there's a sequel to that, which I'm planning to do. And hopefully um, Stone Owls. Stories, which is an offshoot from Shoreline, might be interested in picking those up for a for a, 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 a bit of a collection. And then there's uh, a an outgrowth from one of the short stories I'm trying to sell uh, and haven't sold yet. Uh, that could quite happily be extended into um, at least a, a, a novel, which I'm I'm thinking of uh, working on, which is. A little bit more, a little bit less hard science fiction, still science fiction, um, but uh, involves entities that are that are called free gods who um, are able to manipulate the universe uh, to their own ends. I think I shall I shall leave the trailer at that point. Nice, I like the sound of it. Sounds exciting to me. So um, I will make sure that I uh, put in the show notes as well all your links to your website. And if are you on social media at all where we can yes, find I'm you on, publicly? I'm on Twitter as uh, DaveCL42, DaveCL42. Um, I have, I think you've got the links to my uh, WordPress blog. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the primary places to find me online. I shall put it all in the show notes for you and for our listeners to uh, enjoy. Great. Well, thank you very much, David. I hope you don't get uh, continue to be roasted alive in London. Uh, well, I, I, I think that's probably a certainty, especially since I now have to go up the road to get some lunch. <laughs> well, best of luck in the blistering heat wave. Thank you. And best uh, of luck for your books as well. Thank you very much. And I hope uh, Edinburgh is rather kinder. I'm sure it's rather cooler than this. Just a little bit, yeah, which is nice. <laughs> I won't lie. Civilised place. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Okay. Many thanks. And if you couldn't already tell by my tone towards the end of that interview, I found Dave to be a very interesting, very uh, warm, very enjoyable person to talk to. So if you want to check out more of his stuff, please do so. Go to davecl.wordpress.com to find his blog, Disturbing the Universe, or follow him on Twitter at davecl42. He goes under the name on Twitter, Liberal Intellectual, and he tweets lots, tweets and retweets a lot of stuff that politically I agree with. Um, also, Dave, if you are listening to this, uh, hashtag 
F-B-P-E and hashtag O-F-A-B. What does it mean? Someone please tell me what they mean. They're in his, uh, in, they're part of his name on Twitter as liberal intellectual. It's got them hashtags there. Hashtag F-B-P-E and hashtag O-F-A-B. Uh, I would be very interested. Give me a tweet. Or if anyone else knows what they mean, give me a tweet at RJ Bailey. Indeed, I always enjoy hearing your correspondence uh, about the show or indeed life in general. So if you want to tweet me your correspondence, please do so at RJ Bailey. Uh, links to both myself and Dave's Twitter handles will be in the show notes. Or if you want to speak to me long form, you're very welcome to do so. RJ Bailey at shorelineofinfinity.com about the show Soundwave or about how I conduct myself and the ways I should change my behaviour in public society. I understand that I can be quite off-putting to be around when I've not had a shower for several weeks. If you've got any constructive criticism about the show as well, I really stumbled over that one, didn't I? Constructive criticism about the show. Uh, again, direct it to rjbailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. Do you think the show should be longer? Do you think the show should be shorter? Do you want me to just shut up and play some music? Well, we're going to do that now, kindly gifted to us by Nuclear Blast Records. Uh, this is new from a new band, indeed. Uh, kind of a new band, not really. I mean, this is right up my street, so I know a little bit about this. Luca Terilli, uh has been going for a long time, bit of a guitar virtuoso. He was in a band with Fabio Leone, known as Rhapsody. Then, later, due to legal disputes, had to change their name to Rhapsody of Fire. The band, that band eventually split in two, uh, becoming Rhapsody of Fire and Luca Tirilli's Rhapsody. Luca Tirilli, it turns out, loves the word Rhapsody. In 2016, on their 20th anniversary for their farewell tour, all the members of the band that was originally called Rhapsody got together under the name Rhapsody again, despite the trademark issues, which had forced them to change their name to Rhapsody of Fire. Don't know how they got around that one. Got together to perform one last time as that group. In December 2018, Several months after announcing that Luca Torilli's Rhapsody was now also inactive, Torilli announced the creation of a new Rhapsody band named Torilli Leone Rhapsody, this time composed of the lineup of the 20th anniversary farewell tour musicians. And so, here we have Torilli Leone Rhapsody, the new group featuring original Rhapsody members Luca Torilli and Fabio Leone completed by the former Rhapsody members Dominique Lurquin, Patrice Gers, and Alex Holtzworth, recently announcing the release of their debut album Zero Gravity Rebirth and Evolution. This is the first track from that album, Phoenix Rising. Not only is it an excuse for me to play another over-the-top, insane power metal track, but also just from the opening moments, you can hear that this is an artist, as you'll also see by his back catalogue, that is strongly influenced by science fiction. 
I'm going to play out with this. Phoenix Rising. Until next time, I will see you in the sound wave.
Soundwave was written, presented and produced by director, overtect, verbistect, loquinist, voxtect, RJ Bailey, and co-produced by overtect Noel Chidwick. Music by Tunetect Alex Storer. Stories curated by Verbis Curate Voxtext's Debbie Cannon and Jonathan Whiteside. Poetry curated by Verbis Curate Russell Jones. Can Sci-Fi Save Us? Written by Jane Yolen. Narrated by R.J. Bailey. The Last Days of the Lotus Eaters. Written by Lee Harlan. Narrated by Izzy Hurahan. Sonic Space was produced and presented by R.J. Bailey. David L. Clement's writing can be found via his website, davecl.wordpress.com. Phoenix Rising is performed by Terrile Leone Rhapsody from the album Zero Gravity, Rebirth and Evolution on Nuclear Blast Records. Artwork by Ilutect Mark Toner. If you'd like to support future episodes of Soundwave, you can do so via our Patreon patreon.com forward slash shoreline of infinity. Just look for the sound wave levels. 66.6% of the psychic energy generated by this podcast will be donated to the survivors of the 236th Greygast Cyclin Intersector War Fund.